Wildfires are scorching the West Coast, leaving behind a path of death and destruction. Forecasters call it a bomb cyclone. Winds of 150 miles per hour. Tens of millions of Americans are dealing with dangerously high temperatures, with many areas hitting triple digits. Scientists say climate change is worsening flooding around the world. This is going to get really ugly really fast here. Welcome to the Climate Crisis Podcast. I'm host David Knowles, along with co-host Ben Adler. Ben, earlier today you had the pleasure of interviewing Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, who arrived here at COP26 earlier in the day. Tell me what was the most interesting thing that you heard him talk about in terms of how he's going to spend money from both the infrastructure bill and potentially from the Build Back Better plan. I was fascinated to learn that the Department of Transportation is rolling out initiatives to reduce emissions in aviation and maritime shipping. As he said, it's easy to understand how electric cars will work. And I already was aware that they're going to promote electric cars through tax incentives for buying them if Build Back Better passes. And in the infrastructure bill, they're going to do electric charging stations. But how do you reduce emissions in from airplanes or ships? They obviously can't recharge in the middle of the air or ocean. In particular, the airplanes is the hard one, hardest one to imagine. But apparently, he said they have much lower emissions fuels that can be used. And also, they are working on developing electric planes. So that was probably the single most interesting thing that I learned from that interview. Buttigieg is a guy, you know, a former mayor of South Bend, Indiana. Did you come away with the sense that he is not only prepared for the job that he's doing now as transportation secretary, but that he's going to be really good at it? I mean, what's, what's your sense? Yes. So there was some dissatisfaction among some people on the left who never liked him very much because he used to be a McKinsey consultant. They see him as a moderate. And they questioned his relevant credentials and experience because he was the mayor of a small city that doesn't have a subway system. But he's a very bright guy. He demonstrated a very clear understanding of the issues in our conversation. He did promote alternative forms of transportation in South Bend, Indiana when he was mayor. And the transit policy wonks I know were more favorably disposed towards him than uh, some of the really sort of ideological lefties who, who were you know complaining about his appointment. The other thing is his deputy is a woman named Polly Trottenberg who actually was the New York City Transportation Commissioner and in my previous job, I actually interviewed her for a podcast. And she's very, very experienced, very uh, knowledgeable in the transportation policy space. So, you know, he's the political person. He's very good at giving interviews like the one he gave to us and explaining the uh, reasoning for the transportation department's policies. And the actual implementation will probably be up to more like career bureaucrats. 
Secretary Buttigieg, thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Before I dive into the policy questions, I just wanted to briefly ask how your family is. New kid, always a lot of work, and I, I saw that he was sick or something. So I just wanted That's to right, yeah. Our, we we uh, have uh, twins at home. They've turned our lives upside down. Had a real rough patch in the hospital, uh, especially with our son. But I'm pleased to say he's much, much better. He's at home. Uh, bounced back pretty much fully. So uh, we're relieved and just experiencing that mix of joy and terror that uh, I'm told is parenting all the way through. Glad to hear that. And uh, here in Europe, in the UK, uh, everyone gets like six months of paid paternity leave. So uh, the controversy about your year four weeks uh, seems pretty silly from this side of the Atlantic. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I remain hopeful we'll catch up to the rest of the world on this. So on the subject of uh, transportation policy and climate change conference, the first question I just wanted to ask you is why you are here. Obviously, you work on domestic U.S. policy, not foreign policy, and what you hope to both achieve here and what you hope maybe to learn from uh, your attendance here at COP26. Well, I think by deploying so many members of the cabinet to this conference, the president is sending a strong message about America being back, ready to lead on the climate issue. And uh, the reality is that uh, every transportation decision is a climate decision. And every climate decision is one that uh, affects other countries and where we have to uh, engage with our partners uh, to try to come up with uh, the right solutions for the future. Uh, you know, whether we're talking about surface uh, or certainly aviation and maritime, which will be a big part of what we're uh, uh, announcing tomorrow, you've got to have a sense of where we fit into that bigger picture. And uh, frankly, we've got to do our part to help lead other countries, which means putting our money where our mouth is back home. So I'm going to go home with more good ideas and I think more energy. Uh, but I'm also here bringing good news in the form of that bipartisan deal and in terms of the president's commitment to doing good things. Can you tell us more about the aviation and maritime announcement, particularly, obviously, electrifying airplane transport? Is, is more difficult. Range, but, range so is it, a big concern. Is, yeah, it, everybody gets how an electric car works. It's not as clear how you get carbon out of the aviation sector. That's why we need to make sure we're driving research, not just in alternative forms of propulsion, whether it's electric, hydrogen, uh, that can move us out of the fossil fuel era in the long run but also in the nearer term, what's called sustainable aviation fuels. Uh, these are jet fuels that you can put into an airplane today uh, that's used to taking normal jet fuel, but has been produced in a different way and has dramatically lower life cycle carbon emissions. So we're going to be recommitting to the development and growth of uh, what are called SAF, sustainable aviation fuels. And it's an example of something that will be much more effective if we do it with international partners. On the maritime side, you know, the truth is pound for pound, uh, one of the least carbon intensive ways to move a ton of goods is over the sea. But because there's so much shipping and because uh, the, the kinds of fuels that fuel the ships that carry containers around the world are so uh, fossil or uh, so emissions intensive, uh, it accounts for a big chunk of emissions and there's a lot we can do to make that better. You mentioned the uh, bipartisan infrastructure legislation that just passed, which contains a lot of money uh, that uh, the Department of Transportation will oversee the disbursement of. A lot of money for rail and mass transit, uh, but also a lot of money for roads, which may have some environmentalists concerned about uh, you know, building yet more car-centric infrastructure. Uh, so I was wondering if you could just tell me about what you're going to do in the Department of Transportation to make sure that the, uh, all of the, the money gets the maximum climate benefit possible. Part of what we need to do is give people better options so that you don't have to bring two tons of metal along with you anytime you cross town to go to work 
go to school or go to visit a relative. That means having excellent public transit, uh, which we know is behind in our country. Uh, it means making sure that there are safe and uh, good options for active transportation, making it easier to, to walk and bike to get around too. So much of that depends on design. One thing I noticed living in different communities in the U.S. is the exact same distance where in one city it would never occur to you to drive, and in another city it would never occur to you to walk. And a lot of that has to do with safety, which is why the safety investments in this building, buildings and elements, I believe are safety and climate investments, if we get this right. But of course, uh, we will always have cars, we will always have roads, and that's why making sure that electrification is a big part of this package. The electric vehicle charging stations that are part of the bipartisan infrastructure deal, and the incentives that are part of the second package, which will make it more affordable to get an electric especially for those families that would stand to benefit the most by uh, getting one of those cars, making sure it's no longer just a luxury item, uh, so that they never have to worry about gas prices again. On rail, I'm from New York, and I lived in D.C. for many years, and so I've had the misfortune of relying on Amtrak. I'm not, I don't like flying. I, I prefer the train, but it, it, the service is bad. It's unreliable, and it's, it's very expensive, and there's some concern among transit policy wonks that putting all this money into intercity rail won't be put to the highest possible uses if it's given to Amtrak. I mean, they apparently want to use it all just for maintaining a state of good repair, which doesn't even really you know, add our capacity. So what are you going to do specifically with regard to making sure that the um, intercity passenger rail funds are you know, used efficiently and effectively? Well, we've got to make sure that there are good policies alongside the funding. Now, let's be clear, Amtrak has a compelling vision for expanded service, and they have a major maintenance backlog that's got to be addressed. But let's also recognize that it's not just about uh, the, the rolling stock or even uh, anything at all that, that's uh, in Amtrak's department. When you look, for example, at the reliability issues on intercity rail, a lot of it is actually whether the freight lines that share those rails are doing what they're supposed to be doing in giving passengers priority. So when they don't, uh, all anybody sees is that uh, Amtrak is late, uh, when in fact the, the yeah. real question is were they empowered to get passengers right. to where they need to right. So we need to be using our enforcement and rulemaking toolkit, uh, engaging the freight carriers uh, in, in uh, constructive conversation, and getting those badly needed dollars to Amtrak, which I would say has done a heroic uh, level of work with the resources that they've been given. It's just not there enough. As I understand it, um, speaking of New York, there are some major initiatives to support rail infrastructure in New York, such as uh, congestion pricing, which is still awaiting approval from DOT. Can, can you just give us an update on what's happening with that and, and maybe also the um, gateway tunnel project, which uh, is you know, hugely important to the Northeast Corridor? Well, on something like congestion pricing, it's a local decision, but our role is to make sure that the right processes are followed, and, and that's where we're uh, working with the project sponsors and trying to make sure that uh, you know every element of consultation and, yeah. and review happens. Uh, with what regard to Gateway, um, I'd have to get back to you on that. Um, with regard to Gateway, uh, that was one where it felt like the, the review on, on the federal side was actually holding things up, and so we tore down bureaucratic barriers. And now the other biggest issue, which of course is funding, uh, just got a lot better. That picture just got a lot better, thanks to that bipartisan infrastructure deal. Uh, look, we're talking about infrastructure that is the absolute state of the art circa 1910. It is not suitable to move hundreds of thousands of passengers in the middle of the 21st century. And so uh, the, the need is clear, the opportunity is great, and we're excited that these are the kinds of projects that should benefit from the funds. One of the big limiting factors on increasing the uh, share of trips taken by public transit or uh, trains between cities uh, in the U.S. is the fact that 
uh, your reliance on a car uh, to get from the station to your house or your other final destination. What is the Department of Transportation doing right now to you know, promote com complete streets uh, so that people can walk or bike you know, those shorter distances? Well, uh, one thing we can do is we can encourage complete streets policies through our discretionary programs. In fact, right now I'm going through the applications for uh, the RAISE program, formerly known as TIGER, uh, which represents about a billion dollars in opportunities and one of the kinds of things that uh, could be very competitive uh, are good complete streets initiatives. Uh, this also, again, ties into the safety issue because complete streets uh, approaches, which uh, are basically about making sure that pedestrians uh, bicyclists and cars can all coexist peacefully in the same streetscapes. Uh, you know, that, that's got a safety benefit too. But it goes to a bigger issue, which is this isn't just about transportation. This is about transportation and planning. It's about how we move around our communities, and it's about how our communities are designed. This was a consistent theme earlier when I was with my counterparts from New Zealand to Sweden talking about these issues just now. And I think that's something we've got to do as a federal government. And, uh, really value the relationship we've had with Secretary Fudge and HUD, which really has the lead on so many of these planning issues, uh, so that we have transit-oriented development and design our cities for it to be easier to have, to have that option moving around without depending on it. Just one last question. You made a point yesterday uh, about uh, the role that large highway projects have played in enforcing de facto racial segregation. And some conservatives, including uh, Senator Ted Cruz, mocked that statement I guess because they were completely unaware that the thing you were referring to regarding Robert Moses and the parkways on Long Island is, is in fact true, that they were built too low for buses to go under, to keep low-income people from the inner city from going out to the beaches on Long Island. One thing that, they, that some of them did say in the sort of back and forth that followed, which I thought was an interesting point, and I'd like to get your response, is they said, look, that was 100 years ago. It was 1929. You have to go that far back to come up with these examples of systemic racism that you claim are widespread in our transportation infrastructure, you know, today. And so I was wondering how you would respond to that, you know, and, and argue to them that it's something that still goes on. Well, first of all, there are many well-documented examples of this happening from the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And sometimes uh, we have to be on the lookout for issues that are happening in our time. But to me, the, the issue is not in what year did somebody create this problem. The issue is, is that problem affecting people today in 2021? If it is, if people in 2021 are uh, suffering from a discriminatory policy funded by the federal government, then we have a responsibility as a federal government to fix it. And I, I remain kind of surprised that this is controversial. I don't know who it hurts to acknowledge that harm was done and to propose that we do something to fix it. And it's especially puzzling to uh, hear the, these objections from uh, people who voted against massive funding for roads and bridges in the infrastructure deal that just passed.